turn to Psalm 37. And let me pray for this morning's sermon. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and who we are in you. Help us to remember what you have done for us on a daily basis, minute by minute and hour by hour, to help us rest in your promises and your truths, that our delight and desire is you. And it's in the midst of a world that is constantly in turmoil, that our feet are grounded and rooted in you because of the faith you have given us. Uh, we pray that you lift up that, that we lift up this time to you, that it honors you, it glorifies your name, and that you will be honored, Lord. Your name, Amen. So, if you could stand with me as we read, um, we went over the first seven verses over the last two weeks, but today we're going to read one through verse twenty um, for context. And here reads the word of God: Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundant of many wicked. For the arm of, arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. <laughs> uh, still new at this. So as we start out, we, we don't want to lose focus of the first seven verses. And it's a very brief review. And if you need to listen back the last couple of weeks, we, we do an in-depth study on these first seven verses. But we, we start off, we're told not to fret. Um, we're not to be angry or grow and burn with anger towards what's going on and what evildoers are doing. The Lord lays out their fate immediately in verse 2, and they wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. 
We are called to trust in the Lord and do good. That's a continual trust. It's an act of obedience in our Lord. Next, we're told to delight yourself in the Lord. The Lord is the object of our love, of our hope, and our delight. Commit your way to the Lord, right? We are here to commit our way to him. The burden of life, the weight of life can be rolled onto him. And then we're called to trust in him again for the second time and then finally rest in the Lord. Rest in him. That's true peace in the midst of what's going on in our world and in each and every one of our lives. We can have joy and rest no matter what the circumstance. So we move on to the second part of verse 7 where we begin our study. We are told again not to fret. It says, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Because of what's going on around us, evil people prosper. We see it all the time, and they, they do anything to get ahead. While the, while the Christian and the righteous are suffering for the sake of Christ. Remember what we ended on in last week. We need to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. As we get further into this chapter, we see how, it, how important it is to wait on the Lord. The psalmist's answer to the prosperity of the of the wicked is that it is not the end. What they have or where they are in life is not the final stage of their journey. The fate of verse two and the fate of verse nine is the end of the evildoer. Not continuous success as we see and sometimes we grow jealous of, but, it, but it's a righteous judgment that which waits for them. I have a quote here of Spurgeon on the screen. It says, determine. Let the wicked succeed as they may, that you will treat the matter with indifference and never allow a question to be raised against the righteousness and goodness of the Lord. What if the wicked's devices succeed and your own plans are defeated? There is more of the love of God in your defeats than in the successes of the wicked. To have that kind of perspective and level of wisdom is something to be sought for, amen? If we can treat these kinds of matters with indifference and immediately trust the Lord, then we will focus on delighting in his will for us. That is a recipe for a fruitful and a content life. In a movie or a book, we, we see the characters who we want to be brought to justice. Usually it's the bad guy. And usually we have to wait to see how the story plays out and what's going to happen to him in the end. God has already revealed the ending to us. We don't have to wait. All we are called to do is remain faithful as he plays out his own plan. So he shows us what will happen to the evildoer who prospers in his way, and he has shown us what happens to those who remain faithful to the end as well. We are called, what we are called to do is just sit tight and see how it all plays out and remain faithful. To wait on the Lord and have faith that he will uphold the promises that he has told us in his word. In verse eight, we see these words, cease from anger and forsake wrath. These words means to stop, to leave or abandon, right? To, we are told to let go of both anger and wrath. To have anger against God or the wicked is foolish. It can cause us to lose our temper. Right? And what happens when we do that? 
Usually nothing good comes out of it when we lose our temper. We can, we can say or do foolish things. Some people lash out and they say hurtful things and it damages a relationship. Some people lose control and they, uh, they end up sometimes punching a wall, right? When, and then that never does any good when they hold up a, a hurt hand or a broken hand. Or some people bottle it up and it creates great turmoil with, within them as well. And you see that these are things that we regret when we lose our temper or control. And they, they are things that we need to seek forgiveness for. It's sin that we need to repent of. We are we're commanded to let go of those things like anger and wrath. Abandon that frame of mind and look to Christ. If you could, turn, turn with me to the book of James. If you haven't noticed, I like to use our Bibles and have you guys turn with me. Um, it's no different today. James chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at actually a couple passages there. James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now turn a couple chapters over to chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in everything evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let us not lie to ourselves. When we get angry, we are being selfish. We are thinking about ourselves and saying to ourselves, this shouldn't be happening to me. This is not right. We cannot let ourselves lose sight of what we do deserve, which is the same fate as the wicked. I have on the screen here Proverbs 14, 29. It says, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In Proverbs 16, 32, it says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It is the mark of a godly Christian to keep and maintain a biblical perspective. And we do this by trusting in our God. So in, in verse 8, we see again, so beloved, this is the third time in eight verses we are told, do not fret. Do you think the psalmist is trying to get a point across here? Right? Do not get angry. Do not get upset. Do not get irritated. That's a tough one. It is so important not to forget. When we start to do this, we have to remember to go back to the basics. And it's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. Trust, delight, commit, and rest in the Lord. Remember what God has told us in his word that will happen in the end. We have faith and we rest in that truth. Not in emotions or circumstances. 
We have faith in Scripture, in God alone. So here's a question, and it's a convicting one. What is your instinct or reaction when something goes wrong in your life or something has been done wrong to you? We can learn a lot about ourselves by our instincts, our natural reactions to events. Is our instinct anger or grumbling? Do we think too highly of ourselves and get easily offended? Do we say out loud or in our minds, do you know who I am? Or do you know who you're talking to? Or is our instinct godly and we show kindness or compassion when things are done to us? That's a tough one. Our instincts over time should reflect Christ-likeness more and more throughout, throughout our walks. So why should we ever be angry at God's providence? Because the things in, in our lives we know that are from him. We sh why should we be jealous of evildoers' temporary pleasures when we have eternal glory with our Lord? So if we fret, it shows that we have misinterpreted the purposes of God if we display an attitude of irritation, anger, or wrath. Do not rebel against God by showing any of these characteristics. And if we do, we repent. We repent, we look to Christ, he forgives us, and he is faithful and just to do so. So in the spirit of contrasting the righteous versus the evildoer, as we see throughout this psalm, when we are in eternal glory, the wicked will be cut off and not be found. Their temporary comfort and success will not pay off. This is why it's so important to maintain the proper perspective in life and stay rooted in the word and our faith. This should also cause us to pity and have compassion on the unbeliever. It is not only by grace we know the truth, or it is only by grace that we know the truth, and they are going blindly on the broad road to destruction. This is not something that we have earned or discovered on our own. It's a truth that has been revealed to us. So we cannot boast in it. It should cause us to have a greater desire to share the gospel with them instead of being angry. And to be more like Christ when we are slandered or looked down upon by the world. So do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, as we see in verse 8. And starting in verse 9, it gives us what happens to evildoers. So it, if we are doing evil, what does that make you? It's an evildoer, right? It's pretty, pretty simple. But in verse 9, he said evildoers will be cut off. And I want to introduce you a theme here in this psalm. It happens six times in Psalm 37. It's a theme of a pairing of being cut off and inheriting the land. It's a contrast. And if, I, if you could, follow along with me. The first one here is in verse 9. It says, evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. The second one, if we look closely in verse 10 and 11, it says, the wicked man will be no more, which is cut off. And the humble or meek will inherit the land. Then move down to verse 22. It says, those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The fourth pairing is in the end of verse 28, going into verse 29. It says, the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land. The fifth one is in verse 34. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, 
you will see it. And lastly, at the end of verse 38 into verse 39, we see the fruition of what inheriting the land is. The, the posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. See, what we inherit, beloved, is salvation. That's inheriting the land. So from these texts, who and what will be cut off? The evildoer, the wicked, those cursed by God, the descendants of the wicked, the posterity of the wicked, and when the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. It's pretty eye-opening, isn't it? When you look at Scripture. This is there so we can have a true sight through Scripture. Do not be fooled by their seemingly prosperous life. We, we have to maintain the proper perspective. So this idea of being cut off, it's not what the world thinks of as death. Like when someone passes, they just naturally graduate to a better state. Or whenever someone dies, what do people say in general? They're, they're in a better place. They could live a life that completely rejects and mocks God. And they will still say they're in a better place. Everyone loves to believe in heaven when someone in their life dies. But they don't like to think of the idea of hell or judgment of their sin. This is also what the Lord calls the, the justice of the wicked. Like using an ax to cut off the wicked and throw them into the fire. And let me tell you, this is not the world's idea of who God is. He is just as much wrath, beloved. He is just as much wrath as he is love. Look at Psalm 55, 23 on the screen. But you, O God, who? You, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half of their days. But I will trust in you. We see trust in you again here, as we saw early in our, in, in our psalm. We cannot forget that trust in God leads to rest, and it leads to patience in the midst of judgment. So now we can focus here on, on after being cut off, the contrast of what it means to inherit the land. So who inherits the land? And from the sixth text that we, we looked at, it's those who wait for the Lord, those who are humble and meek, those who are blessed by him, the righteous, he will exalt those who wait for him and, and keep his way. And after all that, he gives us salvation, which is faith made sight. Look at Hebrews eleven sixteen on the screen. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, God's final judgment is the end. That is what decides the matter in life. Not the here and now. We cannot be consumed by the present, but have the final ending in mind. This is another frame of mind that is easier said than done in the midst of trials and tribulation. Amen? But remember, the Holy Spirit can work this frame of mind in us. So I was reading again Spurgeon this week, and um, he's quoting John Bunyan's parable, Pilgrim's Progress, and he, he quoted this, passion has his good things first, the character passion, but they are over too soon. Patience has his good, things la his good things last and they last forever. We live in an age of passion, don't we? We, li we live in an age of instant gratification, the I want it now mentality. 
when we give in to passion, only evil will come of it. We see people reacting with passion to whatever the newest piece of technology is or, or clothing style or even the popular opinion of the day. Being passionately overcome in any way, the mind takes them. Patience or to wait doesn't even enter their brains anymore because it's here, now, now, now. Contrast to that someone who is grounded in conviction and waits. Not only someone who lives by conviction, but actually critically thinks about what's going on in their life and makes decisions. So I listened to a, a sermon recently by John MacArthur, and he was speaking to young adults. And this applies to young adults here for sure, and us. And they asked him, it's a Q&A session, what do we need to know as we graduate, as we go out in the world to stand firm in our faith? He says you need two things, and I'm paraphrasing. This is not direct quotes. He says you have to have convictions, number one. Hills you, you die on and you draw lines in the sand. And not only do you have to have convictions, but you have to know why and substantiate those convictions in Scripture. If you don't have conviction, you'll be like a cork in the surf, floating around any which way it takes you. And you will believe every lie that is told to you. They are pillars, these convictions, that you live your life by, and the world will try everything it can to destroy those pillars. The second thing he said you need to do is have critical thinking. You cannot accept whatever is told to you as truth, especially here and now with everything that's going on in all the media platforms that we have. We are called to test everything in light of scripture. We are being sold ideologies day in and day out, aren't we? And ideology is just another word for philosophies. Universities are the main source of ideologies today. They are able to have the ear of young adults for years at a time. And by the time they come out with a degree, many times these kids are thinking and have solid foundation of their thought process for the rest of their lives. So also what you see and hear on TV and the news must be filtered. It must be filtered through scripture. That is why critical thinking is so important. Every day on all the media platforms that we, are, that we have, we are being told what to think, and not only what to think, but how to think it. And people just drink it up. <clears throat> and if you do not know what is in the word of God and why you believe what you believe, you will believe everything they tell you is truth. We, we have been given... In 1 Corinthians 1.16, we have been given the mind of Christ. And we cannot lose sight of that. So that, that's a paraphrase, and if you want to listen to it, go ahead. But we are called to stand firm in the word of God, because if we don't, we don't stand a chance in, in the culture that we live in today. We have to know what the word of God says in order to stand firm in it. We can't just accept what someone tells us what it says. We, we have to know this by a, a constant study of your own. It has to be your faith. It has to be your conviction. And you have to know why you believe it. We, we have to be ready to give a defense of the hope that lies in us, as we read in 1 Peter 3.15. You cannot give a defense if you don't know what you're defending. 
So I, I've been teaching the youth here for some time, and I've been trying to tell them this over and over. You have to know what your faith is. It cannot be your parents' faith. These kids, the, the danger that we have here in this church is that these kids know so much. And they can think of that as a faith. When, when we go out in the world, young people, when you go out in the world, which is very soon, you have to have a faith you, have, you, you can stand on. You have to know what the word of God says. You're in a church that has brought you up in doctrine and truth, but it can also be a double-edged sword. Make the faith your own. Your faith has to be it. Amen? So moving on to verse 10, we see a retelling from a different perspective of verse 2. The wicked will inherit nothing except judgment. When we see the wicked reach their, their peak of wealth, fame, or power, God can use those very things as a means of judgment. They do not realize how short life is, and the value that they put on those things is absolutely worthless. The things that they've been accumulated, the houses they have, will be sold. Their money that they've saved up will be distributed. And their fame, or whatever they had as fame, fades after they die. It's gone like a passing cloud. And as we sang this morning, it's not even something to think about. It's just a breath. But those who are humble, as we see in verse 11, they will inherit the land. This is the same idea as what Matthew read from this morning in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. This word humble is the same as gentle or meek. And we read there that the meek will inherit the earth. Isn't that funny how that all lines up? The meek will inherit the earth as we read that the humble will inherit the land. This humility is not an outward expression, but an inward grace of the soul. It's an acceptance of God's dealing with us, and we don't just accept them, but consider them as good, even when we don't like it, because they bring us closer to him. This meekness does not blame God for any kind of persecution or evil done to us. And this is not a weakness, but a strength. Uh, it's, it's power under control is, is what meeks, meekness is. And I had a great example from our, our pastor years ago. It's, it's a tamed horse. It's not wild and unbroken, running every which way. But once a horse is tamed, now you have a very strong animal under control. It's not weak by any means, but now it's able to focus its strength as directed. That's what meekness is. And we also have Christ as an example of this for meekness. And look at this on the screen, 1 Peter 2.23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is meekness. Christ could have ended his suffering in an instant, but he entrusted himself to his father. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the psalm, says, Meekness will take off his shoes before the burning bush. But in the power of God, it will also always be able to stand tall before the powerful of this world. You see, we are humble before Christ, knowing who we are in him and what we deserve. 
but we are strong and stand firm in this world to do anything that opposes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how, we re, how do we remain humble and meek? meek? It's, it's what we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? We trust in the Lord. It's back to the basics. Delight in him. Commit our way to him. Be still and refrain from anger and wrath. If we do that, God will protect you and vindicate you. So then we look at the next part of verse 11. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Prosperity means peace. It's salome. You will have abundant peace, right? Not pros- prosperity of things and in, in things of the world, but true peace. What the Lord gives you, the Lord gives you what the world tries to promise you, Right? What, every, what is everyone looking for in the world? It's peace. But what they don't know is that they can only find true peace in Christ. They will label it nirvana, inner peace, bliss, euphoria, fill in the blank. But they will never find it if Christ hasn't given them sight to see or ears to hear. The natural man will always suppress the truth, even though the law of God is written on their hearts as we read in Romans 2.15. They will be blind to his attributes, his power and divine nature through his creation, as we read in Romans 1.20. Abundant peace only comes through a relationship with Christ. In him, we find our peace, and all else will fade away. We should delight in that truth and in that promise, amen? So on the screen, John 14.27, says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, no, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Then also Psalm 119, verse 165. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Where is our, where is our confidence? Where is our trust? It must be in the word of God and who Christ is. So our footing is sure in God's word. It gives us stability. We find peace in reading and dwelling on God's word, and it's where our hope should be and needs to dwell. Now we turn our attention to the next section of our text. The Lord's dealing with the wicked, starting in verse 12. The wicked are described here as enemies of God and God's people. They are people who are evil and do not learn righteousness. So let's read verses 12 to 15 here. It says, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Excuse me. The activities of the wicked are futile. No matter how much they plot, hate what is good or gnash their teeth in bitterness, They are like soldiers in a desperate battle who will use any trick for gain to overcome the righteous. There's no place for the way that is upright in their world. We must be careful, we must be careful that we don't do the same. Gnash our teeth at the wicked as they do to us. We have no cause to if we have maintained a proper perspective. They are acting according to their nature and we should act according to ours. We may ask ourselves, why can't, why can't the wicked just leave us alone? Why can't the wicked leave God's people alone? And we see the answer in Genesis 3. 
verse 14 and 15, on the fall and the curses bestowed on Satan, Adam, and Eve. And in, in verse 14, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, there is enmity between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman. It's God's people and those who are under the influence of Satan. It has been the same since the garden, since the fall and the curse of man. The wicked will never leave God's children alone. And it will be that way until we are either in glory or the Lord comes back. So they gnash their teeth at the righteous, and instead of becoming like the righteous, the wicked, where there is rest, peace, and joy, the wicked will do anything to tear them down because they cannot attain what the righteous have on their own. And what does the Lord do about their plotting, their scheming, and their anger and hatred toward his people? He laughs at them. As we read in the beginning of verse 13. And now we don't usually think often of God laughing. It's not usually a characteristic that we attribute to God. But this is not a laughing of God taking a matter lightly, as we often do. And it's not him brushing off the wicked and just chuckling. We see this same laugh in Psalm 2, where the Lord is mockingly laughing at the wicked. In Psalm 2, we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. In Psalm 2, the kings and nations are trying to stand against the Lord and overthrow his rule. Um, Not much has changed, has it? There's nothing new under the sun as we look around and see what's going on today. Now in Psalm 37, the wicked plot against God's chosen and God treats an attack on his people as an attack on him. He will judge and give sentence to the wicked. He knows the day is coming where where vengeance will be his. He doesn't need to act immediately. He sees the beginning from the end. And the day of the wicked is coming, as we read here in verse 13, for he sees his day coming. And on that day, the power of the wicked will be broken. So with these truths in mind, as believers, we do not need to trouble ourselves with what the Lord will deal with. Vengeance will come from the Lord. Sinners are in God's hands, and they still scheme against his children. If you could with me, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. starting in verse 25. Proverbs chapter one. And it reads, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distresses and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. 
They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. In the beginning of this proverb, in verse seven, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom is depicted here crying out in the streets in this psalm, and it gives the example of fools who despise knowledge, wisdom, and instruction, and who do not fear the Lord. They will eat of their own fruit, and it will be their ruin. This is God's judgment on them while they are even here on earth because they will not accept him or his counsel. They will be cut off and be no more. The aim of the wicked, the aim of their evil, is the afflicted and the needy, as we read in verse 14 in Psalm 37. Like sport or game to be hunted. They are ready with the sword and bow, waiting for an opportunity to hurt the righteous, but they reap what they sow. Listen to this quote by James Montgomery Boyce. I have it on the screen. And it's his commentary on this psalm as well. It says, the principle here is that sin carries the seeds of its destruction in itself. An evil empire can endure for a time by its own brute strength. But if it is corrupt, the corruption will weaken it from within and it will eventually fall. It is the same with individuals. People can cheat, use, or intimidate others for a time. But eventually their characters will become known and others will either refuse to deal with them or destroy them by the same tactics. Isn't that true? It's like Haman in the book of Esther. The wicked shall be hanged on the gallows they built for Mordecai. And it's like Saul who was looking to kill David and he ended up falling on his own sword. This is a reminder not to fret. The wicked with all their scheming to get ahead in life and plotting against the righteous. They are ruining themselves by the very thing that they are doing. They will pay for what they think others deserve. So now in verse 16, there's another refocusing on what's important, what matters in life. And verse 16 says, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. <clears throat> Contentment is in view here, being content in our lives. Contentment finds much in little, while for the wicked heart, the whole world is too little. It says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark eight thirty six. Their abundance can bring some happiness, and it can make life easier, but it does not bring the fulfillment. But the little that the Lord has given his people bring them, brings them joy and contentment in their lives. Next we see the arms of the wicked will be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous with his own arms. His arms do not tire. They don't get weak or fatigued. We can be sure that the, the Lord, of the Lord's faithfulness to us and his promises that we will never be broken. The wicked become useless or ineffective. How, how can someone wield a sword or pull back an arrow or a bow with broken arms? God destroys the very ability of the wicked to come against his people. The wicked's power to do harm is taken away. Then the same God turns to his people and, and upholds them and nourishes them, not only in their time of need, but also throughout their lives. 
Listen to Isaiah 41.10. says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in Psalm 119, starting in verse 116, sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked from the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. That's a proper view. Then in verse 18 and 19, the focus shifts back to the righteous. The Lord knows his people. He knows our hearts and minds. And he has an extent of knowledge of each and every one of us. So we also know ourselves, don't we? And we know what goes through our minds and our attitudes in certain situations. And what, the Lord, and what does the Lord call us in spite of us? Well, we read it right here. Verse 18, he calls us blameless. Then he goes even further. Not only does he declare us blameless and we stand justified by his work, but he also gives us an inheritance. And we see what that inheritance is in verse 18. It is to be with him in glory forever. But between justification of the believer and then when we're with him in glory, there's going to be a process of sanctification. It's a dependence on God while we're here. In verse 19, we read, they, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. Before the Lord comes back, we will be living in a fallen world, which we are. Which means we live in a time of evil. But we will not be ashamed of our God. And we will have an abundance of joy in hard times. He will give us abundant peace. We find comfort in knowing that justice will be given to the wicked by God. Enjoy that we are not going to receive that same justice, but by the grace of God. In times of disaster, we will not wither, meaning we will not be put to shame and he will have, we will have plenty in time of famine. It also means that we will be satisfied. God's promise is that we will have life and it's full enjoyment when we have the proper perspective. So the righteous never claim immunity from trouble, do we? We cannot claim that. So we should not be upset when we are given our portion of it. This is when we turn to the Lord for his strength and he proves his faithfulness towards us. Everything is in the Lord's hands. We have to remember that. Everything is in the Lord's hands. He is sovereign. And he does not, or he does not promise that faith will preserve our possessions but what it does preserve is our joy in this world. And finally, in verse 20, it says, but the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. We see yet another contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will be sustained and receive internal inheritance but the wicked will perish like the glory of the pastures. 
their lives vanish like smoke. Which brings us full circle back to verses 1 and 2, if we remember in our study. It says, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For what will happen? They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. When we get agitated or envy the wicked, what we are doing is rejecting what God has for us. We do not have the fear of the Lord in our hearts at that moment. And we cannot put ourselves in the camp where God is laughing and scoffing at them. And he's waiting for his time to judge them. It is sin, and and if you're doing that, we need to repent. If we have ties to this world, we will perish with it. And after we have just studied, we should be seeking a separation from the world and, and running to Christ. Amen? So as I close, if you've heard this scripture today, I pray that you see what is waiting for those who are outside of Christ. This is probably not the God you have heard about from the world. The God of the Bible, as we just saw, is wrathful as just as much as he is love and compassion. The God of Scripture is a jealous God, and vengeance will be his on the day of judgment. But for those who believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ... We will be saved from that day. What Christ did on the cross was pay for the judgment that is waiting for each and every one of us. He stepped in as a substitute for your sin and took the wrath of his father in your place. For that reason alone, we are saved. God no longer sees you in your sin, but in his son. Therefore, he sees you as holy and blameless as what the scriptures has told us this morning. If you have not done that, repent and believe. Do not turn away from God calling you to himself. Please come to Christ and find peace and rest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your scripture and the truths that it has for us. Thank you that it helps us refocus on who you are and what we have in you and what we should deserve, but what we are going to get is, is your salvation, your inheritance. Lord, help us to remember these things throughout our lives and our week, to be strengthened in your word and your faith that you've given us. We pray this in your name, amen.